as we look together at God's Word today, let me read to you the opening line of one online guide and and survey regarding spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. This assessment was one that I subsequently found on dozens and dozens and dozens of church and ministry websites, something that had been copied and used by many, many churches. Here's the opening line. Take a look at on the screen here. Discovering and exercising your God-given spiritual gifts allows you to experience maximum fulfillment with minimum frustration in your Christian life and ministry. Let me read that one more time, just so we're not missing it. Discovering and exercising your God-given spiritual gifts allows you to experience maximum fulfillment with minimum frustration in your Christian life and ministry. Yeah, that, that hooked me. That hooked me right when I read it. I thought, sold right here. Consider the focus of that introduction. I know it's not lost on you. Maybe you've heard something similar in regard to this topic in years past. Maybe you've never thought about this topic or you've always had questions that are just left unanswered about this topic of spiritual gifts. Whatever your experience, let's together dive into this subject this morning and hear what God himself wants to show us beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you're not there, get over there to 1 Corinthians 12. Our main text this morning will be verses 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. So before we look at that main text this morning, it's important to note that the main topic in this chapter, really in this section, and that section includes chapters 12, 13 and 14. We always talk about what's most important when we're trying to understand God's word, which is what? Context. Yeah, context. So context is not just the verse before and the verse after the verse you're trying to understand. It can also be large sections of a book like this. Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. So that's the section that we're in this morning. The main topic of that section is clear. It's perfectly clear. And we know this from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Take a look at that verse. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So this section is Paul's response to the Corinthian church's questions to him about spiritual gifts. Remember what I said last week. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, there are a number of quotes that Paul is addressing that were probably coming from the church. In chapter 7, all of a sudden, it switches to, he says, now as to the matters which you wrote me about, the things that you wrote to me about, here are some answers. And every time he says concerning this, concerning that, He's addressing issues that they've communicated to him that they need help with. That there are some questions that are lingering. So, this is concerning spiritual gifts. Now, notice that these are spiritual gifts. 
Let me say that right from the start. These are spiritual gifts. And that word spiritual will be fleshed out more. That's kind of an interesting, yeah, juxtaposition is and spiritual and fleshing it out. <laughs> it will become clearer to you the, all the connotations that, with this, that go with this word spiritual. But I'm emphasizing this because these are not talents. These are not your hobbies or interests. These are not skills that you've acquired. These are spiritual gifts. Make sense? As we'll see this morning, Paul will use this subject that they're asking about, spiritual gifts. He's going to use it to actually guide them back to far more important ideas. But what, with that topic of spiritual gifts in mind, let's look together at what Paul tells them in verses 4 through 7. Look at verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 12. Now, says Paul, there are a variety, not, he doesn't say that actually, he says in the ESV, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, let's stop there. I think our best way into this passage is to explore, like I said, in light of the context, in light of the section, we're going to explore three of the phrases that we find in the verses we just heard, verses 4 through 7. So first consider with me this phrase, the repeated phrase. Take a look. There are varieties. Did you notice that? It's repeated there in verses 4 through 6. There are varieties. There are varieties of gifts. There are varieties of service. There are varieties of activities. Gifts, service, activities. Gifts, service, activities. Now, that's, that's not something you usually hear when people are talking about spiritual gifts. You don't hear the fact that Paul actually provides us with two other synonyms for the idea of spiritual gifts. And that is activities and service. Spiritual gifts, service, and activities. Notice how he's using all three of those terms to give us a fuller picture, picture of ministry within the church of the life together of the body of Christ, doing church, being the church with one another. These are the words that he uses here. Gifts, service, activities. We're talking not only about spiritual gifts, we're talking about spiritual service. We're not only talking about spiritual service, we're talking about spiritual activities. But why this emphasis on the fact that there are varieties, as our main phrase indicates, there are varieties or as some translations render it, different kinds of gifts, service, and activities. Why that emphasis? Well, when you read chapters 12 through 14, I think the answer becomes clear. Apparently, there were some in this church who were arguing that one of these gifts, one, just one of these gifts, specifically speaking in tongues, 
What does that mean? It just means speaking in other languages. Speaking in other languages. They were saying, some were saying, this was the only true gift, or at least the only gift that actually mattered. This misguided emphasis is evident from the fact that Paul spends 24 out of 84 verses in this section correcting their thinking about speaking in tongues. That's over a quarter of all these three chapters that he's spending correcting them about this issue. And you can find that correction, you can read it yourself in verses 2 through 25 of chapter 14. But even if another gift was in view here, it's clear that some specific gift or service or activity is being overly exalted in this faith family. That seems to be precisely what Paul is arguing against in the opening lines of his very famous human body analogy that comes from 1 Corinthians 12. You've heard that, right? The church is like a human body. The body of Christ is like a human body. That's what we see here. Look at the opening of that argument in verses 14 through 19 of chapter 12. Take a look in your Bibles. What does he say? He says, for the body does not consist of one member. One member. Right out of the gate. That's his correction. The body does not consist of one member or parts. That is one gift, one service, one activity, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Are you kidding me? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, right? Just that one part. If the whole body were an eye, where would, be, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members or parts in the body, each one of them as He chose. And look at how He circles right back to the same argument. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Why is Paul emphasizing varieties in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 12? Because like the human body, the body of Christ, the church is composed of a variety of individual parts with a variety of different functions. There are the different individual believers and there are different gifts, service, activities, just as Paul is describing in our main text here. And we find Paul detailing these differences in verses like 8 through 10. Take a look. Look at 8 through 10. You see that? And then look down at verses 28 through 30. You're going to see another list there of some of the gifts and activities. And in fact, some of the offices or roles. Those are the ones he numbers. First, second, and third. And there's a reason he says first, second, and third there. And the rest he says, and then. And then the rest of these. Well, first, second, and third, we know those are important because those are in Ephesians chapter 4, aren't they? That they're key in terms of leadership within the church, those offices. 
So he's providing some correction here in terms of what's, what's really clearly important and then what are the rest of these gifts in terms of how they function within the church. But all of it, he says, is part of the variety that God is, is working out within the church. The variety of gifts, service, and activities. But this emphasis, his emphasis here on these varieties has to be balanced. It's balanced with the next phrase that we'll consider from our main passage. Take a look. Number two, but the same. But the same. Look again at verses four through six of chapter 12. Here's our main passage. There, though there are varieties of gifts, service, and activities within the church, notice what, we, what else we read. The same Spirit, Paul says, the same Lord, the same God. What do we have there? We have a Trinitarian formulation, right? This is a, this is a, this is a way of describing the whole Trinity at work within the church, within the people of God, right? The Spirit, the Lord Jesus, and the God the Father. The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God is behind all of it, though there are these varieties. Or as Paul puts it in verse 6, it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Right? Look at the words all and everyone. See that? All and everyone. And Paul's emphasis here on the unity in this diversity is crystal clear a few verses later in verses 11 through 13. Chapter 12, 11 through 13, Paul writes, all these, there's the word all again, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body, that is the human body, is one and has many members or parts, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So it is with the church. For in one spirit we were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. There's some more diversity for you. He's just adding to the diversity equation here, isn't he? Jews and Greeks, slaves are free. All are baptized into one body and all were made to drink of one spirit. You'd have to be brain dead to miss the emphasis here, right? Six times in three verses, Paul's using the word one. One, 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 one. You see that he's driving home the fact that no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter the gift you bring, no matter the service you exert, no matter the activity in which you're engaged, we are one body in Christ. The spirit is at work in all of us. It is the same spirit who distributes and empowers the gifts, the service and activities within the church in every single believer do you believe that some of you don't practically you don't believe it and you know you don't believe it and your lack of your lack of expressing gifts service and activities is the indication you don't believe it paul is correcting us here the spirit is correcting us here So why is Paul needing to emphasize all of this about but the same, one body, one spirit, the same spirit 
active in all. Why is he needed to emphasize this? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 14, verse 12, that the Corinthians were eager for manifestations of the Spirit. That's what they were eager for. Manifestations of the Spirit. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. There have been churches throughout the centuries and there are churches in our modern world who are unnaturally, unusually obsessed with what they would call manifestations of the Spirit. That's what they want to see. That's what they want to experience. The Corinthians were no different. They were eager for manifestations of the Spirit. And that it seems that some in this church, in light of a verse like 14, verse 37, considered themselves to be spiritual. They called themselves spiritual. Most likely in an, in an elitist kind of way. In an uh, I'm better than you kind of way. So if, if some were emphasizing manifestations of the Spirit, we need to see manifestations of the Spirit, And they also were thinking that their spiritual gift was the only gift that really mattered. Then these individuals must have believed that they alone possessed the Holy Spirit or that some way in some way they had more of the Holy Spirit than others in the church. And when you understand that, you begin to understand why Paul is emphasizing here That every believer has the Spirit. And the Spirit is being manifest in a multitude of ways. In all of the gifts and service and activities that are going on within the ministry. Paul offers a wonderful correction to this mindset right at the outset of chapter 12. Look what he tells Look at what he tells them there at the end of verse 3 about the clearest evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence and power. This is how he begins. He wants to lay this down and establish this right from the get-go. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You want to see the Holy Spirit working? Then listen for the mouth that's confessing Jesus is Lord. Look for the life that is submitting To Jesus as Lord. That's the Holy Spirit. Who possesses the Spirit and how is He manifested above all? In everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. As King. So please keep in mind that what we learned last time. Think about what was happening in this local church. I mentioned to you last time that the very first issue that Paul addresses here with the Corinthian church in chapter 1 of this letter was the issue of what? Divisions within the church. Remember? Divisions within the church. There were factions forming within this church. There were cliques taking root. So as Paul emphasizes these realities of one body... And one spirit, he is again speaking the truth in love to a fractured or a fracturing church. He's clear in 12, 24 and 26 about the practical application of his emphasis here. What does he want them to understand about what he's telling them in chapter 12? Look at 12 24, the second part. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. Do you see that? 
that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. What a picture. How beautiful to see this picture. He's again still speaking to this main issue from the letter that we know about from chapter 1. That there may be no division in the body. And that beautiful picture there leads us to consider a final phrase from our main passage. And that is number 3, for the common good. Take a look at the screen. For the common good. Look again at chapter 12, verse 7. Chapter 12, chapter 12 verse 7. Paul writes, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Remember chapter 14, verse 12? The Corinthians were eager for manifestations of the Spirit. So he's telling them really early here in this section, hey, here we go. You ready for talk about manifestations of the Spirit? Well, let me tell you this. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Though many in Corinth were thinking about themselves, about their own importance, quote-unquote, or their own unimportance, quote-unquote. Paul wants them to focus on what? The common good. Their shared good. Their shared life together. The healthiness of their shared life. And this emphasis on the well-being of the entire church is apparent in this section, most notably, all throughout chapter 14. You can't read chapter 14 without tripping over and over again over this idea. Take a look. Over, look you can look over at chapter 14 if you want. It's clear from the outset of chapter 14 that Paul wants them to focus on, verse 3, speaking to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Do you want a threefold objective when you come to church in the morning? There it is. Upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. Again, in the very next verse, verse 4, he wants them to be concerned with that which builds up the church. The goal is stated again in verse 5, that the church may be built up. Following his own example, Paul wants each believer to be asking, verse 6, how will I benefit you? And to be concerned when, verse 17, the other person is not being built up. This is why Paul, near the end of the chapter, summarizes his instructions like this, verse 26, let all things be done for building up. In fact, Paul's corrective couldn't be clearer than what we find in chapter 14, verse 12. Listen to the entirety of the verse. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. He couldn't be any clearer, could he? He couldn't be any clearer about his corrective here. And what should motivate this focus on the other? What should motivate this 
the striving to build up, the concern for the other person being built up, doing all things for the sake of building up, what should motivate this focus on the common good? That's where chapter 13 figures into the equation. Yes, I understand that you might have heard it recently at a wedding. That is not its context. That's not where it's found in Scripture. Not in John 2 at the wedding in Cana. Jesus didn't get up and start reciting it. (laughs) That's not where it's from. It's from right here. It's from right here. And what should motivate this focus on the other? It's chapter 13. Our motivation in all this should be love. No matter what gifts service, activities I'm engaged in, in the church, in ministry, if I don't have love, chapter 13, verse 2, I am nothing. If I don't have love, chapter 13, verse 3, I gain nothing. Speaking of manifestations of the Spirit, as we have been this morning, How will these Corinthian Christians know if they truly have love? How can they know if they truly have love? Well, Paul provides for them a kind of barometer in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 13. Look at it. He says, if you are living in love with one another, you divided church, you fracturing church, if you're living in love with one another as God has called you to do, then you will be patient and kind with one another. You will not envy or boast. You won't be arrogant or rude with one another. You will not insist on your own way. You will not be irritable or resentful, nor will you rejoice at wrongdoing. Instead, when you are living in love, you will rejoice with the truth. You will bear all things. You will believe all things. You will hope all things and endure all things with one another. That's what love will look like among you. That's the love that should motivate our striving to excel in the building up of the body of Christ. So what have we learned about 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? We've learned that misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit, misunderstandings about spiritual gifts were being used to fuel factionalism within the church. Their misunderstandings were in no way helping. They were fueling the, the fracturing of this church. Some seem to be looking down on others because they did not possess certain gifts or fulfill a certain kind of service or engage in certain kinds of activities, all of which apparently uh, were thought to require more of the Spirit of God. Or that some of these gifts or service or activities were sure signs of the Spirit's presence while others were not. And as a result of this misguided mindset, others seem to be looking down on themselves 
because they couldn't measure up, because they didn't have those gifts. Instead of each person in love, seeking that which would build up their brothers and sisters, the Corinthians seemed focused on their own encouragement and their own status within the church. But what about us today? Way of grace. What about us today? What would God have us take from these chapters? I I feel confident in saying that God wants us to take from these chapters the very same corrections and encouragements that Paul hoped his first readers would embrace. To put it simply, take a look. When it comes to spiritual gifts, service, and activities within the church, God wants us to be less concerned about the what and more concerned about the why. He wants us to be less concerned about the what and more concerned about the why. Don't just wander around saying, what is my spiritual gift? What is my spiritual gift? What is my spiritual gift? Where's the survey? Where's the form? Where's the assessment? Tell me, where's my spiritual gift? He doesn't want us asking first, what is my spiritual gift? He wants us asking, why is my spiritual gift? That is, why does the Spirit empower me the way that He does for ministry within the church? Why does He empower me in this way? First, let me share a couple of thoughts about the what. I think there's good reason to believe that the lists that we find in this section, verses 8 through 10, verses 28 through 30 of chapter 12, the lists we find here along with lists that we find in other New Testament letters, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 5, or 4, 1 Peter 4, that these lists are not exhaustive. There's good reason to believe they're not exhaustive lists. Therefore, Paul doesn't provide these examples of gifts and service and activities like he lists here. He doesn't provide them so that the Corinthians can do an assessment and figure out which gift or gifts they have. And if they don't, they're sidelined. No, that's a modern reading of this text. That is not what's happening here. I think Paul provides these examples and different examples in different letters. He provides these examples here simply to remind them of the many different ways the Spirit is at work among the people of God. Don't you dare look up here at me and think, well, God's really using Pastor Bryce. I hope that's true. Oh, Pastor Bryce has a fullness of the Spirit that I could never have. I hope you don't believe that. Don't you dare look up here and then miss and exalt me or anyone else in a certain kind of position, with a certain kind of activity, with a certain kind of gift, and neglect the brother or sister who is on their knees every morning praying for you. The one who considers you and brings you a meal. The one who sends you a card. And says, be encouraged. Or who sends a text. Or who makes a visit to you. 
The one who comes alongside and helps plan something that is a blessing for the church. Shame on us in our celebrity culture as we have tried to exalt, as we have tried to exalt certain gifts, as we have tried to exalt certain, as we have pigeonholed the Spirit of God and said, oh, that's where the Spirit of God is at work. That, that's where He's at work. I can tell. Because it's supposed to look like this. Paul has given us what it's supposed to look like. Right here, hasn't he? In fact, when we look at these lists of of different examples of ministry taking place within the church, in many cases, and this is strange to us, I think different people at different times are used by the Spirit to fulfill different roles. Whoa, that could blow your mind, right? Well, I know my spiritual gift is that. Well, maybe this week. Maybe this week that's your spiritual gift. Guess what? Guess what? The Spirit may empower you for something different next week. He may work powerfully. If you're having trouble processing what I'm saying here, it's because I think you're stuck in the old way of thinking about spiritual gifts. It's not what Paul is saying here. Yes, people can function in offices, like Paul lays out here. We have to be sensitive to what he's describing and what the rest of the New Testament says. But this fact that different people at different times used by the Spirit to fulfill different roles, this helps us make sense of what Paul is saying in this section. For example, on one hand, he says, not all have this gift. Do all do this? Do all do this? Do all do this? Do all do this? Hmm, okay, yeah. But then a few verses later, he says, I wish that all of you did this. I wish that all of you had this spiritual gift. What? What are you talking about, Paul? You see, he's he's talking about how the Spirit is moving and usually moves among people. And he's driving home to this point that we'll get to in just a second. Is there a value in understanding the different examples listed here? Absolutely, there's value. We do want to understand the different things that are mentioned here service administration prophecy speaking in tongues interpretation of tongues healing service you know the things that we see here we do want to dig into those and understand them not only about what they tell us about the first century church but also our life together but sadly too many people have gotten stuck on trying to figure out what their own spiritual gift is the what they've gotten obsessed with the what they've got stuck on the what or they've pigeonholed themselves with the what or they debate they stand around and debate the what of a particular gift and in doing so have minimized the far more important why so on to the why from the what as we've already seen the why here The why here is not about discovering and exercising your God-given spiritual gifts so you can experience maximum fulfillment with minimum frustration in your Christian life and ministry. No, the why here is not about you. It's about the common good. The common good of the body. The most important thing you'll ever hear about spiritual gifts is this. Are you listening to me? The most important thing 
you will hear about spiritual gifts is this. Chapter 14, verse 12. Strive to excel in building up the church. I don't care what you take away from this message on spiritual gifts, but if you take that away, mission accomplished for Pastor Bryce. Mission accomplished the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit in your life. Strive, you personally. Think about it. Stop. I'm not just issuing platitudes here. I'm not just reading scripture to you and you go, oh yeah. No, this is the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you personally. Right? Heather, Josh, Christian, Jan, Stephen, strive to excel in building up the church. Whatever else you're striving after, you make sure that this is at the top near the top of the list. Whatever else you want to excel in in your life, you better make sure that this is near the top of the list because this is God's word to you. He wants you to strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, what is most the most important spiritual gift? What is the most important spiritual gift or service or activity when it comes to our shared ministry and our life together? Well, some might say, well, look at chapter 12, verse 31. It's got to be these higher gifts that Paul mentions in 1231. See, there's a whole other category of, of higher gifts that he's mentioning here. Gifts like prophecy, which Paul goes on to emphasize in chapter 14. But if these spiritual gifts really are manifestations of the Spirit, then take a look. The most important gift has to be any gift, service, or activity that builds up my brothers and sisters in love. Does Paul put it in those terms in this section? No. But you better believe that's what he's driving at. It's because of that truth that Paul emphasizes prophecy. That is, sharing, sharing that word that God gives you for another brother or sister. Or for the faith family. Sharing that word that God puts on your heart to give to the body of Christ. To give to that brother or sister. Because why? Why does he emphasize prophecy? Because it builds up brothers and sisters. And it does, doesn't do so in an unknown language. It does so in the language we all understand. Fellow believers, friends, we need to give thanks this morning for the diverse and amazing ways that the Spirit of God works through fellow believers to strengthen the church. Have you stopped and thought about that? Just stop and give thanks and celebrate that fact that we're not all the same. Stop and just look up to God and give thanks to Him for the diversity of the body of Christ. It's an amazing thing. Just think about the variety of people that God has used in your own life. The variety of circumstances. The, the ways that you've been ministered to. 
And let's guard our hearts in light of this passage in this section. Let's guard our hearts in light of these temptations to pigeonhole the spirit and wrongly elevate ourselves or others because we misunderstand how the spirit of God is manifest among us. Let's guard our hearts against those temptations, those pitfalls. And most important, let us strive every Sunday and throughout the week. Let us strive to be servants of Jesus who, in love, are always focused on chapter 14, verse 3. Upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Do I come every Sunday with that mindset? No. Should I? Yes. Can I get carried away with things going on all around me? Things that need to be set up here, getting going with everything? Yes. And forget this? Absolutely. Can you get caught up at home on your way here with all sorts of other things? Right? Good or bad? Drama, non-drama? Can you get caught up in that and miss this? Absolutely. We need to pray and ask God and we need to encourage one another. God, help me with upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. I want to bring that to my brothers and sisters this morning. I feel empty, Lord, but I want to pour myself out. Would you fill me? Would you fill me for that very thing? What should that, like, what should that look like in your life? Well, if you want to know what it looks like to come to build up the body of Christ, if you want to know what it looks like to be a person who comes focused on and is practicing and living out this upbuilding and encouraging and consoling ministry, then just on your own, read through carefully chapters 12 through 14. Just carefully look for application of what God is giving you that you can then bring to the church. And as we desire, chapter 12, verse 31, as we desire, as we, chapter 14, verse 1, pursue, as we, chapter 14, verse 12, strive, I love those words, desire, pursue, strive. This is not a, this is not a, a, a dead or inert section in scripture, is it? It is calling us to action. Desire, pursue, strive as we are doing those things. Let us do so with the same recognition that Paul mentions in chapter 15, verse 10. Look over there. Chapter 15, verse 10. What does Paul say? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. My place within the church and my ministry and my calling... It's by grace. By His grace, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Brothers and sisters, desire, pursue, Strive, not in your own strength, but through the grace of God that is with you. 
Christ has made that possible. Praise God for the gospel of grace that not only brings us to Jesus, that would be enough. (laughs) Not only brings us to Jesus and puts us in Jesus, but that also makes us his body, members of his own body. The gospel of grace connects us and binds us as part of the body of Christ. And the gospel of grace empowers us to love one another and others with the same excellent love that we have received from Jesus himself. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us with these very things, to embrace these very things.